Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What role does a school principal play in ensuring good working conditions for teachers and staff and good outcomes for students? As lawmakers place a growing emphasis on the need for intensive, regular teacher evaluations, school principals find themselves facing unprecedented workloads. Many report struggling to manage their time effectively. My guests recently published a study in partnership with the Center for American Progress to explore how principals' roles are changing and suggest ways school systems might adjust their responsibilities in order to yield the best results. Both join us from the Department of Education Policy and Leadership at the SMU Simmons School of Education. Watt Leslie Black, Jr. is Clinical Associate Professor, and Lee Alvoid is Clinical Associate Professor and Department Chair. They both also have experience as public school principals and are co-authors of a report that we just discussed, which you can find online. They join us as part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative. Welcome, both of you, to Think. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Tell us specifically, what are principals responsible for today that wasn't part of the job description a generation ago? I think the biggest shift in the last five years, even, is the emphasis on instructional leadership because... Uh, achievement is so much more public, school achievement is so much more public, and particularly schools that are not achieving at a high level need leadership that has instructional expertise. So the principal's role in selecting and developing and retaining high-quality teachers is has become very prominent in the job. I, I would uh, agree with that, and I think... Um, the push recently um, in the reform movement for um, more differentiated evaluation of teachers, um, uh, more robust evaluation systems, really increases that even even more, the, the amount of time that principals are going to be spending uh, in the classroom, um, being really involved in conversations with teachers about instruction. And that's something that um, didn't always happen um, with principals 20 years ago, 25 years ago, even 15 so are principals being provided with um, like a formula for evaluating their teachers? Do they, is it pretty standardized from school to school and district to district as, as principals are trying to assess the performance of, of their teachers? I think it varies somewhat. And, of course, we look nationally at the, the whole issue of how the evaluation systems are impacting the role of the principal. Um, I think the indicators may vary from district to district or from state to state. But basically, most of the systems are set on um, best practice instructional um, pra- practices that you would want to see in a classroom mm-hmm. and a focus on looking at the students to see whether or not they're learning and how engaged they are. Uh, so I think there's similarities across the board, but there's some variance from district to district. But I wouldn't really call it a formula necessarily, and I think therein lies the problem mm-hmm. because uh, when when Center for American Progress asked us to do this report, their concern was on the practicing principles, the people that may have been out there for several years that 
didn't have the right training to be able to implement these systems effectively, and they wanted to know what districts were doing to support and develop their skills to be able to diagnose what's right or wrong in an instructional segment in a classroom. And so that's a little bit what we looked for in the case study districts is what, what's going on out there that's cutting edge that could inform districts that are getting into implementing these policies and shore up the skills of principals that may not be prepared to really give the right kind of feedback to teachers to change things for students. It was noteworthy to me that um, principals turned out to be quite good. They can always identify the stars on the team, right? They know exactly who their best performers are. It turns out to be more challenging figuring out which teachers might be, um, despite their best efforts, struggling in the classroom. Right. I think that's that's true, and, and that's why, you know, there's been a lot of dialogue nationally about um, – the fact that so many teachers um, are rated so highly. Um, I think it was Michelle Ree and, um, you know, when her group published the, the widget effect a number of years ago, when they, the thing that popped out of that was, I think, 99% of, of all teachers in the, in the districts that they studied were rated at the exceeding expectations level. And, and that just didn't seem cognitively to make sense to a lot of people that that many teachers could be the very best teachers. Um, and so um, that's been sort of the big push of these new systems is to more meaningly differentiate mm-hmm. uh, the top performers from the middle performers, from the lower performers, from the ones who really, you know, need some targeted um, work in terms of improving their instruction. And, um, you know, without the principals trained to do that, and the states, the, the first states that started doing this, for example, in Florida and Tennessee and in Michigan, they um, – put these kinds of policies in place and, and found that it really didn't change things. There were still, you know, 97, 98 percent of teachers being given the highest ranking possible. Um, so just changing the system itself mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it changes the way the principal is going to evaluate teachers. There are a lot of sort of subtle and coercive pressures within the building. You know, if you've taught for me for 10 or 15 years and you've consistently gotten high evaluations and we change the system – and you, under that system, would get a lower evaluation, there's still sort of a pressure on me as the principal to con- continue evaluating you at, at the same level where you've been. And so those are the, the pressures that are at work, I think, that, um, and one of the reasons principals really need to be the focus of this implementation. Meanwhile, um, and we'll talk in a minute about how principals can help teachers teach to the best of their ability, but um, none of the other responsibilities have have fallen away, right? They're still budgeting and making sure the cafeteria is staffed properly and making sure that carpool operates the right way. Um, So there's talk now, and this report explores some of this, about offloading some of the traditional responsibilities of principals to other staff members and potentially even creating some new positions to take care of those. Can can you describe some of that? Right. Um, I have thought for a long time, even through my principalship, that there were problems with the organizational system of how a school is run. I don't know really any CEOs of corporations that would have the span of control that I had. I had 220 professional employees. Um, I didn't direct report they didn't direct report all to me, but a huge percentage of that didn't. I, you know, when you look at the corporate literature, which we did um, in background development for this report, the span of control is much smaller in most operations, even though this are just sort of a human industry, uh, not producing widgets at all. Right. Um, but that has felt um, 
a little wrong to me for a while. But with these new systems coming in, that's being confirmed that to find one person that has the skill set to do all of the operations and management part of running a school and to have the deep level instructional expertise that you have to have to coach teachers to higher performance is it's just becoming more unrealistic. Um, and I, I don't – the training programs for pipelines are getting better about that. But a lot of districts don't have a lot in place for existing principals to ramp up their skills um, in terms of professional development opportunities to ramp up their skills to be able to really handle that broad of a range of responsibilities. So that is one of the big findings out of looking at our case studies is that many of these forward-thinking districts have redone the job descriptions and redone the organizational chart to have operations principles and instructional principles uh, to cover the whole frontier of running a school. Yeah. And I think someone asked me yesterday, how is that really any dif- different than a traditional, you know, principal, assistant principal? Can, can a principal delegate um, some of those responsibilities? And, of course, they can. But as, as Lee mentioned, traditionally the span of control for a principal has just been this absolute authority of, over every aspect of what happens in a school building. And um, so even when things are delegated to um, assistants underneath a principal – Things have a way of making their way back to the principal. Uh, if a parent or, or someone else is unhappy with the decision made by a delegate of the principal, um, unless it's a very clear sort of organizational chart and it's very clear to the, to the person who's got the grievance that the principal's not in the loop, that grievance usually ends up you know, in, in the principal's lap. And, and so and it sometimes ends up taking more time then to resolve than it would have if the principal had just been – had never delegated it in the first place. So we looked um, at some things that were happening nationally. The Wallace Foundation has a project called SAM, which is um, the um, School Administration Manager Program, where they have brought in people. um, They have created um, additional positions on school campus that um, um, handle some of the administrative and operational positions and, and frees up the principal's time to be more involved with instruction, more in the classroom, more interactive with the teachers and the students. Um, and theoretically, it's supposed to be more of a peer-level thing, but in reality, what we s- have seen is that a lot of time it's a, it's a uh, paraprofessional um, or someone else who, who um, is being sort of given these responsibilities. And, and I don't know that they're always trained for that level of operations. And so what we looked at in Uplift here in Dallas, which is a network of charter schools, is a system they've put in place where they have a peer-level operations manager on the campus who is at the same level with the principal, and the organizational chart is set up such such that they are in charge of those things, um, operational. I think what we would advocate would um, go even a little further than that and because the principal in Uplift is still handling all student service matters, mm-hmm. discipline, and, and that sort of thing, and the operations manager handles building budget um, operations, maintenance, those sorts of issues. And um, so we would even go further than that and say we need somebody that can handle, that's peer level to the principal, who parents wouldn't feel the need that they to, to bypass or to you know reach over their head, but they would feel like they have the manager over whatever it is, whatever issue it is that they're um, dealing with. They're dealing with the person in the building that has the ultimate authority over that issue. But so it, effectively, it works almost like countries that have both a president and a prime minister. 
Is that a good metaphor? I'd say that's a pretty good metaphor um, mm-hmm. because they both have – I think the – that they both need position authority. Mm-hmm. You know, they both need and the clear communication to the public and to the parents about who plays which role is really a tricky part of this recommendation that we've made, but it, uh, and an important part. But it is functioning in a lot of places. And the the other thing we saw, like in Gwinnett County in Georgia, is the um, the district has picked up some of the work off of the principal, like maintenance requests, those go directly to district personnel. They've um, negotiated what the principal felt like was important for to keep autonomy over. Mm-hmm. And then the district has picked up those things that uh, just are time consuming and that could handle be handled more directly with district personnel. So that's kind of another model, um, although they've also redone the job descriptions of the assistant principals and the principal um, to facilitate the instructional uh, focus for the principal. Well, Les, you mentioned Uplift, and they've actually had some trouble finding people qualified to actually do this peer-level job. Exactly. Yes, I was going to mention that. That's one of the interesting things we picked up from that case study is that um, creating the position is just, you know, step one, then finding someone who can do that because you have to still have someone who has educational expertise because um, even if they're just dealing with the operations aspect, number one – they have to understand how operational decisions impact the educational program, and they can't um, always make efficiency be their, you know, their number one um, goal because sometimes we do things in less efficient ways in schools because it's better. It's better for the instructional program. It's better to minimize disruptions. Um, so they have a hard time finding someone that that does the operations. And has that sensitivity to the instructional program. And then I think if you talked about that position also having control over discipline, it becomes even more so for them to have some legal expertise and instructional expertise and understand policies and and that sort of thing. So. We're speaking this hour with Watt Leslie Black Jr. and Lee Alvoid. Both uh, join us from the Simmons School of Education at SMU, and both are co-authors of a new report for the Center for American Progress on the changing role of the school principal. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call us at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour as part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative about the changing role of the principal with two people who have just completed a report for the Center for American Progress. Watt Leslie Black Jr. is clinical associate professor in the Department of Education Policy and Leadership at the SMU Simmons School of Education. Lee Alvoid is also clinical associate professor and chair of the Department of Education Policy and Leadership. If you would like to join the conversation, 
conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at org. All right, let's talk about time management. Um, how can principals get this additional work done until um, we have perhaps another position created without working 16-hour days or schedules that are going to cause them to burn out and, and quit? Actually, that's somewhat of a challenge um, because part of the report, part of the findings in the report were studies that people are burning out and people are leaving early, particularly principals that have come through new reform-minded um, preparation programs are finding that district policies don't really support what they want to implement to try to turn schools around. And so they're leaving within the first couple of years of uh, their work. It's it's a huge challenge, but I think some of the things we try to train our prospective principals uh, to do in our preparation programs are to really, their calendar is their friend, to, mm -hmm. to calendar out everything that's stuck on their schedule, district meetings, things like that, and then to try to discover time to get into the classrooms and try to manage things. I think there's another, our second recommendation was really about looking at the talent pool and the teaching staff to try to leverage the talent in your building to help you with instructional issues, to have teachers with the content expertise help coaching someone that's struggling to, again, try to build leadership, um, not necessarily at the peer level, but within the ranks of mm -hmm. the school uh, to distribute some of the um, the work in terms of that deep level, again, instructional improvement that needs to happen. And so I think good diagnostic skills of who you're able to de delegate things to, it's also a talent that we try to develop in our prospective principals at SMU. Um, but the calendar is your friend. You have to really be deliberate um, in terms of how your week and your day is scheduled out. Always knowing there's going to be some kind of surprise. Too. Out of nowhere, right. <laughs> right. Is there an ideal tenure of service for teachers? Do schools do best if teachers stay, whatever, from five to seven years or from 10 to 15 years? Is, has anyone looked at that? You know, I, I think the years don't matter as much as what happens during those years because mm -hmm. you can have a 15-year veteran teacher that did the same year 15 times mm -hmm. or you can have people who are very development-minded and growth have a growth mindset and uh, respond to the changing population that they're serving. So that's that piece in the middle. After you select really good people, how do you develop them? And then how do you retain them? Because there is some evidence that high turnover is not in the best interest of the students because you're trying to build a school culture and a set of beliefs, uh, particularly in low-performing schools yeah. with underrepresented kids, uh, about all children being able to learn. So if you have a, this in-and-out kind of thing, it's really can be problematic. We particularly know that about principal turnover. And Lee mentioned earlier um, the um, recent study that talked about how um, short um, a, a, an amount of time um, new principals stay, particularly in, in schools that are low-performing schools. And, and we know that um, schools tend to underperform the year after, the year that there's a new principal anyway. And so is this a cycle of, of this churn and burn and, 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 and um, principals being replaced and turnover at the top, which leads to more um, teacher turnover in a building as well? And it's sort of a vicious cycle that, that feeds itself. So I think your original question really was about the sustainability 
uh, of the work, the time management piece. And, you know, we looked in at Chicago where they've implemented their um, their REACH student program, um, their, their new um, – you know, it was in the news several years ago, a couple of years ago, when when the Chicago teachers struck, and and um, part of that was around this new appraisal system. And what was all in the news was about the student test scores being used. But what didn't make the news was the amped up number of of um, observations um, and the meetings with teachers and and the administrative work that went with each observation cycle. And the Uni- University of Chicago has done a, a study on that and found that. Um, Elementary school principals are spending um, about 120 hours on nothing but observation-related um, uh, paperwork and, and observations, or excuse me, evaluation-related observations and paperwork and pre-conferences and post-conferences. And in high school administrators, it goes up to 100, 180 hours. Hmm. So that's you know it's close to uh, depending on you know most principals work at least a 60-hour week, but that's two or three weeks of, of um, doing nothing but that during the school year. And so they found that a lot of those principals were having to to just sort of ignore other responsibilities of their jobs, meeting with parents, meeting with students, other things that seemed less pressing in order to make sure they took care of those responsibilities. So I think um, I think sustainability is a big piece, and I don't really have a good answer to that. We can do the best we can to, to manage our time and to improve our time management skills. It's still going to be a big challenge and still going to be overwhelming. Um, As we sit here now, it seems to make perfect sense to provide principals with additional support as they are uh, given additional responsibility. Uh, On the other hand, let's talk about political will, right? Because whenever you talk about putting another administrator in a school when maybe uh, many people, uh, teachers and parents alike, feel like there needs to be more people directly in the classroom providing instruction, they say, why are you, I'm using air quotes here, Mm -hmm. wasting money on administration Mm -hmm. when we need instructors? So how do you combat that issue? Well, I think a lot of it's in the implementation piece. Um, If teachers come away from these observation feedback cycles feeling like they're being developed as opposed to feeling like they're being evaluated or tested, um, then they're going to buy into it more. So the quality of the feedback, we looked at several studies that just being in the classroom doesn't really make that much difference. Mm -hmm. It's the quality of the feedback that they're given and the kind of coaching skills that the people have. So I think, again, even if you added these people, if they were highly skilled at helping develop people and giving people feedback, teaching is a very lonely position. You go in there, you have your group of kids, you close your door, and it can be very isolating. So actually, I think if done well, teachers would welcome high-quality feedback. Getting lousy feedback or no feedback at all and just having someone waltz in and out of your classroom is going to cause the kind of reaction that you're talking about where people resent um, adding to the administration. But also, I want to go back to my teacher leadership thing. I think we need to take a little bit of an Edmund Stimming approach of distributing the layers of authority within a school and creating some teacher leadership positions that have additional funding behind them so people want to stay in the classroom longer and not become administrators. And so your really talented staff are having almost an equal 
uh, effect on improving instruction in addition to what the administration is doing. So I don't, I don't think the eggs are all in the administrative basket. I think it's in looking at the whole organizational structure and creating distributed leadership throughout the organization focused on student achievement. And there's where I think we've made prom- had problems in the past. Uh, we haven't always focused on the right thing. And you can tell schools that focus on the right thing from schools that don't. And Lee and I, when we were working um, on this report, we had a lot of conversations about um, the idea of the principal being the the instructional leader, being the end-all, be-all, you know, um, grand poopa of instruction in the building um, to the expense of, of the expertise of, of the, you know, the people around the principal. And so that's, that's why that's our number two recommendation is to develop the, the instructional leadership capacity of the teacher leadership, the people around the principal, the assistant principals, the teachers, the department leaders, um, because we really feel like we, we get a more robust leadership um, when we diffuse that a little bit. Um, no one person you know, is going to come in with uh, – they may come in with deep, deep instructional knowledge, but they're probably not going to come in with the vast array of curricular knowledge that they need to um, – you know, be equally as good a instructional leader for every single person on the staff. Um, so having the, the content expertise, um, sometimes a math teacher just needs to know, you know, um, how am I going to teach measures of central tendency, you know, or measurement or um, whatever the, the topic is. They just need something very content-specific to help them grow. And, it's and you know, if, if my background as principal is social studies or foreign language um, or fine arts, I'm not going to go to you. I'm going to go yeah. to another math teacher. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. And and so I think formalizing some of that, back to your original question, I think the morale issues would diminish if people mm-hmm. felt like their needs were being served mm-hmm. well. Um, and really on a lot of the operational stuff, they'd rather someone else take care – the teacher would rather someone else take care of that. And I remember getting that feedback as a principal, you know, and they said, don't send us the bell schedule again for approval. Just make one and let us know what it is. We don't really need a committee and a lot of input on that. You know, there were certain things they just wanted me to do. Right. Um, But there were certain things I needed them. I needed help from them because, like, when I went in to observe BC Calculus, because I'm a literacy background person, um, I could tell if the students were learning. But it was about equal to going in and hearing French 4, you know. So I didn't have that deep-level content expertise, so I had to rely, again, on the expertise in the department to help anybody that was struggling. Yeah, that's the key. It's, it's when someone's struggling, and you mentioned earlier, Chris, about we can pick out the star performers. You know, even if we don't know, even if you don't know BC Calculus, if you're a literacy person, you know when somebody's really, you know, hitting all the right notes and, and the kids are really being successful. But if they're not... Sometimes you need that content expertise to help them, to coach them up to performance where they need to be in in a content like that. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone to Gary in Plano. Hi, Gary. Hi, good afternoon. I have a question about evaluation of principals. Now, in some school districts, as far as I know, teachers are given an opportunity to provide feedback about administration and it's usually, as far as I know, it's not anonymous, and it's pretty general in nature. But So I'm thinking that it would be a good idea, and I'll um, ask your guests to respond to this, uh, to, to have annual anonymous evaluations of principals by teachers. 
because the principal position is so important. And if, te- if teachers were given an opportunity on an annual basis to have uh, an anonymous uh, feedback evaluation of the principals, I think uh, some of the principals that are ineffective, uh, that could be shown uh, more quickly. And I'll hang up and uh, listen for the answer off the air, okay? Thanks for your call. I'll start out responding to that, and unless you chime in, I actually think most of the district case studies that we have have systems like that in place, and they put their principal system of evaluation either in place ahead of the teacher one or simultaneous. And they do; they even have student and parent input on the principal's performance. So that is coming along policy-wise, uh, parallel to the teacher evaluation. And I'll make, make one kudu to DISD, since we're a local um, uh, organization that works with them. They are starting their complex teacher appraisal system this year, but they started their principal one two years ago. And it's just now hitting where the the money differential for high-quality principals is hitting the paychecks this year. I think that was a really smart strategic move because they had to put the principals through the ringer <laughs> a little bit and get all kinds of feedback. Again, students, parents, um, their supervisors in central office, and uh, looking at the rankings and the performance of the school prior to trying to implement anything with the teachers. So I am all for um, similar, if not parallel, um, appraisal systems for principals. And that's that's part of the push, too. I mean, I, this this whole push towards changing teacher evaluation is really coming from at the federal level in, in the initiatives out of race to the top and, um, you know, the the waivers to the, to the uh, no child left behind requirements. And so part of what they call for also are, are new principal appraisal systems that are very similar in, in some components to to what the teachers are, are beginning to see. Um, as to the, the anonymous um, surveys, I think, you know, it, it, all the time that, that um, I was a principal, and I, I can even think back to my teaching career before I got into administration, there have been, um, you know, organizational health inventories, anonymous surveys that teachers got to fill out and, and answer various questions. You know, the, 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 um, level to which those were um, taken into account in terms of a, a principal's actual evaluation, I think, um, were always kind of a mystery to the teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, as a principal, I, I sat with the um, superintendent every year, and we would go over the, the results of those surveys. Um, they may not always be, you know, uh, as – they may not offer as an opportunity for teachers to give as pointed feedback toward a principal as they'd like to. Um, but a lot of times they do have open-ended things where teachers can anonymous, anonymously say whatever they want to say, and, and they do. Um, so I think um, – but I think that's going to become more systematic with the changes. And, and I do think you know parents having the opportunity to chime in and students as well. Students, student surveys are going to be part of the teacher appraisal program in Dallas ISD, and, and, um, you know, which um, makes a lot of people nervous, makes a lot of teachers nervous. But um, – um, there's been some research behind that, and it shows that students are actually pretty good um, if the survey is designed right have are, are pretty good indicators of how a teacher's doing so are teachers so, nervous because they're afraid a, a student has an axe to grind because they got a D sure. instead of a B in right, calculus kind of sure mm-hmm. yeah but, but the those surveys are designed some of the ones we looked at in in the um in, like for example in Denver they're designed and written in such a way where the student really doesn't have a chance to um 
to go off on an open-ended uh, tangent against a teacher, and, and they're answering very specific questions, you know, um, like my teacher challenges us, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are geared towards the, the types of things that um, the district is looking for um, from their teachers. So it's a scary idea. I, I admit if I were a teacher, it would make me very nervous. But, um, you know, as a college professor, we, we've been dealing Have with that for a long time. time right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So you learn from the feedback and you grow. We're speaking this hour with Watt Leslie Black, Jr. and Lee Alvoid. Both join us from the Department of Education Policy and Leadership at the SMU Simmons School of Education. They're also co-authors of a report for the Center for American Progress called The Changing Role of the Principal. You can find that online. They join us as part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative. You can join us by calling our number 1-800-933-5372 or by emailing think at kera.org. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're talking this hour about the changing roles of school principals with two guests from the Department of Education Policy and Leadership at the SMU Simmons School of Education, who co-authored a recent report on the subject for the Center for American Progress. Lee Alvoid is here, also Watt Leslie Black, Jr. If you'd like to join us, call 1-800-933-5372, and that's where we hear from Maura in Dallas. Hi, Maura. Hi, and I was just wondering, it seems like one thing's not being factored in, and it's kind of like trying to, again, fix the system that's broken instead of looking at why it's broken. The principal spending 60 hours a week and having to overlook so many teachers and so many students, it just seems like the size of the school and just the amount of people they have to supervise is is the real issue behind this. And um, I know we can't there's not money in anybody's budget to go out and build a bunch of more schools. But what about models like Townview, where you have multiple schools in one building, or KERA did something, I think it was in July, on a public school building that housed a public school and a charter school in the same building. Any thoughts on that? Um, I actually am a fan of smaller schools um, or those kinds of shared resource schools like Townview, um, the the complication at the high school level, which is where my most recent experience, is, is the demand for the range of curriculum that people want students to have to be college ready, um, the AP classes or if you're into international baccalaureate. And I, that's where I think Townview's done a good job of sharing some teachers and sharing some resources. But I do think however you break it down, I do think that that whole number of students per leader, per teacher, is a piece of the organizational structure that has to be examined. So I really agree with you that the the size is an issue. Yeah, and I think um, 
there are a lot of schools out there um, trying to, even when they don't have a, a setup just like Townview, to to sort of subdivide the school community when they're a larger school and to create schools within schools and colleges. Sometimes they call them colleges. Um, and divide, sort of divide the kids up into uh, areas of interest, um, career pathways, um, curricular pathways, and um, then divide up the administrative staff so that um, you're, um, you've got a, a, you know, a group overseeing a smaller group of teachers and, and students. And I know, um, you know they've had a whole lot of success with that with a um, school in Carrollton Farmers Branch at, at R.L. Turner. Um, they've, they've done a complete turnaround there uh, with some really exciting work. So, um, yeah, I think um, that's one of the ways that you can deal with some of those time constraints is to try to break down the school into smaller communities and, and to develop the capacity of the people you have to run, um, sort of autonomously run those communities within the school. The the expertise of the leader is still in question, however. Um, and so I think that's a little bit where our focus was, that the, the amount of support and training for principals to be able to, to – serve those teachers in a meaningful way is a factor as much as the size. So that ongoing training, ongoing support from, and that has to be a district uh, function. A lot of our recommendations are about what the district has to do to support either reorganizing their schools size-wise or reorganizing the administrative staff of the schools so that the bottom line is the front line is the teacher, and the amount of support that that administrative staff is able to give to that teacher to impact the student is what makes the difference in a school turning around or a school achieving at a high level. So, Another recommendation of this report was cultivating partnerships with universities and with not-for-profit institutions. What do the most successful partnerships look like? And um, I would imagine there's a way to do these well, and there's a way to do them and, and have them not be very effective. I think you have to have a really clear mission and vision about what you're trying to do before you reach out to a nonprofit. Um, organizations or to a university, you have to know what you need from them. Um, an example is in Charlotte Mecklenburg and the case study on Charlotte Mecklenburg. Uh, to develop their teacher leadership piece, they reached out to a nonprofit that has an expertise in that, and they were able to donate their services to and some funds to support the whole development of the teacher leadership, which allowed the district to focus on the principal um, professional development needs. And so that's a really classic, but they knew they needed that. And they knew somebody in the area provided it. And they sought that partnership and negotiated it very carefully so that it fit into a broader mission of the district. Um, so, I, you know, again, partnerships can be tricky. Uh, we, uh, our urban principal development program is in partnership with the Teaching Trust, which is a nonprofit organization and um, trying to say who's responsible for what and how the the partnership works. Um, you have to be very deliberate and it has to be very goal and mission driven uh, for that to work. A, a lot of those partnerships are you know what we call pipeline partnerships. They're, they're designed to prepare future leaders. And um, for example, in Denver Public Schools, they, they partner with um, um, University of Denver, the University of Colorado. They partner with nonprofits. They are a um, 
I don't think they like to be called a, a portfolio district. They're technically not that. But w- what I mean by that is that they have inside their district charter schools that are district schools, um, what they call innovation schools, and then more traditional you know, school campuses. And so their principals have vastly different needs depending on what type of, of campus that it is. Um, so they partner with the nonprofits to prepare leaders for the charters, the, the, um, in, what, are, what they call their innovation schools. Um, and they partner with the universities on, on, you know, some of their more traditional preparation programs for their more traditional schools. And so I think it's, it, as Lee said, it depends on what you need. And Lee, I think you didn't speak about this, Lee, but maybe you can talk about the partnership um, in, in North Carolina um, right. with the rural districts because that's a – the rural piece of education is something that gets left out of the, the reform dialogue all the time. Right. We were, we're focused on urban um, and urban issues and urban problems, and a lot of there's a lot of need in, in rural districts. Yeah, and and researching that piece, the Northeast uh, Leadership um, Academy that's out of um, North Carolina State University, uh, they focused on the eastern northeastern rural districts in North Carolina. And t- what people don't know is 20 percent of our children in this country are in rural districts. That's a lot of kids. That's 10 million kids who are not in the conversation about reform. Um, And uh, so that's a hugely underserved population. And the university embeds their students that are prepping to be principals in those remote communities and uh, has them live there for a year while they're in residence, Uh, has them get involved in churches, nonprofits, recreation centers so they know about the life of the community. And then the hope is that they'll want to resettle there. Um, And then they do a lot of work with technology, remote coaching, hooking the rural principals up together for professional development through technology and trying to support. But those schools often, there's no assistant principal. There isn't going to be another position in those schools. And so those principals are trying to implement these complex systems with no one else on the administrative team and maybe not very many people in central office either. Um, And think about Texas, how many rural districts we have here that are trying to implement complex reform movements without many resources or university in the community. So that's an area that I'm really interested in uh, thinking about how technology can help support, how partnerships are critical with universities or nonprofits to try to reach out to those isolated communities where there's not a pipeline. Um, being able to identify your low-performing teachers in a remote rural district doesn't do you a whole lot of good because there's nobody to hire. Right. And so, you either have to develop the people <laughs> you either, you've got. So those yeah. coaching skills and the expertise of the principal is really important in being able to bring people along um, because there's not a pipeline of either teachers or administrators. And that's that's 20 percent of our students. And that's going to be an even bigger issue in Texas as the state begins to roll out a a revamped uh, teacher evaluation process. You know, up until now in Texas, we we haven't really – Gotten some of the some districts. Dallas has gotten ahead of the game on on changing the way they um, evaluate teachers, but um, the whole state's going to have to change um, because we applied for a waiver from No Child Left Behind, and um, so that should be rolling out this year and in a number of districts. And by next year, rural districts all over the state are going to have to figure out how they're going to implement these systems. Are we certain when we call this school reform 
that um, enhanced teacher evaluation by principals is going to make things better? Or is this just the next thing that we're throwing at the problem of education that has plagued us for decades? I do think there's evidence. There's The controversy is whether the student scores should be a part of the evaluation. Mm-hmm. That's a, because, you know, you you get who comes to your doorstep right. and you have to, to shape that. Um, but there's also promise in making sure that teachers move students forward. Um, the one thing we do know about student achievement improvement is that, the again, the teachers, the, the single most important factor and moving kids forward. And so if we do these new systems right to where it's not just evaluation, that it's also coaching and supporting and developing people, then um, there's pretty good evidence that the teacher will be able to move achievement. What we don't know is if the system's implemented punitively and there's fear on the teacher's part, and they shut down or they try to do a formulaic lesson that they think is going to meet the criteria of the principal, and the principal can't give them any feedback to help them get better, we don't know that that's going to make a hill of beans difference Mm -hmm. in student achievement. And so there are some unknowns. Um, And the hard thing about looking at any reform movement is there's not been a lot of um, scientifically designed research behind a lot of – what's being recommended. I, I think the promising thing is, is, and this has come up a couple of times in the, in the last hour, is if principals are better able to identify um, teachers' um, growth areas and, and then coach them through those growth areas and help them improve, I think that that has a real chance of improving uh, outcomes for kids. Um, what it says on their evaluation is is kind of secondary and, and not as relevant, but the idea of training principals to coach uh, because we're really good. Principals have long been good at evaluating, you know. But what what we don't do well always is coaching, and and again, that's why that's one of our um, that's our number three recommendation is focus principal training around the idea of coaching because Lee's right if if it's all punitive if it's all evaluative. If there's not the growth component, then, yeah, it's just it's not going to make much difference at all. Uh, evaluation's always been an area of sensitivity for teachers, you know, because I don't think we, we've talked a good game about making it about growth, but I don't think it always has been. And um, most teachers will probably tell you it hasn't always been. So that's I think that's the promise in some of these changes is if it can force principals more into a coaching role and have them think more about growing their talent, the, the instructional talent in their building, and helping them recognize not only the best teachers, but where other teachers can improve and what they need to do to help them improve and what resources they can give to the teacher to help them improve. That's where the promise promise lies, in my opinion. Quick final thoughts about what parents can do to support the principals of their children's schools. I really think there's a lot parents could do. I think we under we're one of the few programs that actually has a whole course on how to involve the parents and work with the community because schools should really be the center of learning for our community should be the go-to place and I think there are certain tasks and not just volunteer things but certain things that parents can do to throw support to a school um, either with their time 
or they're sometimes they don't have any financial resources, but they have areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, they can mentor students. I had a, a big professional mentoring program at the high school, and I used a lot of my parents in the Chamber of Commerce to come in and do kind of career mentoring with with students. So there's expertise that's in your parent crafts, um, art projects. You know, there are all kinds of things that would take a little pressure off the teachers, um, free up some time for the principal sometimes, um, and uh, contribute to this. And I think the other thing they could do is have empathy how, <laughs> about how complex these organizations are and how challenging both the teacher's role and the principal role yeah. is in trying to move schools forward. My guests today both joined us from the Department of Education Policy and Leadership at the SMU Simmons School of Education. Both also have experience as public school principals and are co-authors of a report for the Center of American Progress called The Changing Roles of the Principal. Watt Leslie Black Jr. and Lee Alboyd, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. My guests were here as part of KERA's American Graduate Initiative. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer with help on the phones today from Christina Alsh. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. You can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.